Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Publishing Director at Word on Fire. We've shuffled around our titles a little bit, but it's good to be here with you. we got a great discussion today about Bishop Barron's recent conversation with Jordan Peterson. We're going to recap that dialogue, we're going to get Bishop Barron's thoughts about it, and we're going to revisit some of the key moments and turning points from their conversation. But before we get there, Bishop Barron, good to see you. I know you said it's kind of hot there in your new Santa Barbara studio, isn't it? It's very rare to be hot in the studio. Normally, I'm really cold in here. Uh, there's no air conditioning in Santa Barbara. That always surprises people because the weather is usually so perfect out here, no one needs it. But occasionally in the summertime, it gets a little warm. So for the first time ever, I'm a little warm in the studio. So if you see me sweating, it's not because I'm, you're making me nervous, you know. <laughs> Well, before we get to the Jordan Peterson conversation, a couple of Word on Fire updates here. First of all, you just returned yesterday from Los Angeles where you were engaging in a long dialogue. I think you said it went almost eight hours, nine Mm -hmm. hours, about season two of the hit film series, The Chosen. Uh, Lots of people have been talking about this, raving about it. Uh, What were you there for in particular? What did you guys talk about? I was there with um, Dallas Jenkins, who's the writer and the and the you know producer and the guy behind the chosen, and then with two other gentlemen. One was a, a Messianic Jew, so a Jewish rabbi, but who accepts Jesus as the Lord and Savior, and then with a wonderful professor from Biola University, a, a Protestant scripture scholar, and they have been both very involved in the writing of the script, so they're really invested in the program. They asked me to come on as a Catholic voice to assess the series from a Catholic standpoint. So we went episode by episode, season two, uh, all eight. So I got advanced copies of some of the ones that we haven't seen yet. And, um, you know, it was an interesting uh, day. Um, we covered a lot of ground, a lot of different issues and questions, and they would look at it from a you know, Jewish and then evangelical and then I from a Catholic perspective. You know, questions of, of Mary, questions of forgiveness and salvation, questions of Jesus, the play of the natures between Jesus. I mean, all of this was grist for the mill, but it was, uh, it was good. It was a good day. I'm sure by the time this episode releases, those videos will be available. So we'll link to them. And if okay. not, follow Bishop Barron on social media. I'm sure we'll share them there. Um, second update, I feel like every time you and I get together, Bishop, we're announcing a new book from Word on Fire, <laughs> and today we got a new one. It is titled, After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. Now, a quick word about this book. It was written by F- Michael Ward, who yeah. is arguably the greatest C.S. Lewis scholar in the world. He wrote the groundbreaking book, Planet Narnia, which uncovered this secret code. C.S. Lewis embedded it in the Narnia books. Um, But he's widely recognized for his scholarship on the work of Lewis. And this book is the first ever guide to the book that Lewis himself described as maybe his favorite book. And Lewis said one that was not really discussed by the public called The Abolition of Man. I know you've read this new book and you've read The Abolition of Man. So tell us a little bit about this title. Yeah, real proud of this book. I read it in manuscript form uh, several months ago and loved it. The Abolition of Man, very short text, but I think pivotal. And I just wrote a column really on this theme because I think it has great relevance to today when we've so relativized our sense of value and truth. Uh, I don't know any book like Michael Ward's here that looks almost in a line-by-line way at the abolition of man. It also gives a, I thought, really fascinating historical background and sort of uh, conceptual background to the, the text. It's also got great pictures. I love the pictures in the middle of all the key players that were involved in it. So anyone that loves Lewis, uh, get it. It's one of the best Lewis books out there now, I think. 
anyone who is interested and who shouldn't be in this theme of objective truth and value will benefit from this book. And then uh, we're also able to, aren't we giving with it, Brandon, if you buy that book, you get this little edition of The Abolition of Man itself. It's a very short text, and we're publishing it with uh, the same cover, right, as the Michael Ward book. So it's a great deal. Get it. Yeah, so go to the website, wordonfire.org slash humanity. When you order Michael's book, as Bishop Barron said, we'll give you for free C.S. Lewis's book titled The Abolition of Man. So you get the original book plus the new commentary. It's a great package together. All right, let us move now to your recent dialogue with Jordan Peterson. This was the second time the two of you Mm -hmm. sat down for yet another two-hour discussion. This one was titled Christianity and the Modern World. It was recorded in March. It was published in April on Jordan Peterson's YouTube channel. Last I checked, it has almost 800,000 views Mm -hmm. and over 10,000 comments. So clearly struck a nerve among people. And when you read the comments, you'll see the wide range of of people who enjoyed this discussion, atheists, agnostics, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, like everybody just loved a serious, respectful conversation about religion. So let's start with your initial impressions. What was your takeaway? What'd you think? How did this one go compared to the first one? Oh, I loved it. It was a great, it wasn't back in March. It doesn't seem that long ago, but I remember being very cold in the studio when I was recording that. Uh, I loved it. I thought it was a, a great conversation. We covered a lot of interesting things. I like talking to Jordan Peterson because he's a very serious man, and um, you know he, he doesn't let you off the hook. I mean that in a good way. Like he'll really pursue a question, and if he finds something puzzling, he'll want to know more about it. And we talked about pretty deep um, themes, so I always enjoy that. Uh, the first conversation was um, just before he went through his own kind of sickness, and his wife was so sick, and I think he was in a in a you know, somewhat difficult emotional space in that first interview. He seemed, you know, like he was going through a lot. He's written a lot about that. You can read it in the beginning of his new book. The second one, uh, to me, he seemed kind of more himself and more, you know, uh, engaged and alert and, you know, pursuing questions. And so, um, you know, I just enjoyed spending that time with him. We'll get to this here in a moment, but I noticed in the second one, he seemed to have a more personal and profound analysis of suffering, given yeah. this immense amount of suffering he and his wife and his family have right. gone through. When he spoke about it, you could tell it was so heartfelt and not just abstract. Not and an abstract question. Yeah, quite right. Quite right. Okay, so about a month ago, when we recapped your dialogue with Alex O'Connor, we went through and played a bunch of short clips and kind of revisited them, got your thoughts on them. We're going to follow that same pattern here. So I've got about eight clips lined up. They're each about a minute long. So I'll play the clip, and then we'll get your thoughts on each one of them. Good. First one is at the nearly at the very beginning when Jordan is kind of wondering, asking you, pondering why people, young people, are leaving the Catholic Church. So here's his thoughts on that. I also think that, and this pertains to um, something we also talked about discussing, which was the, the continual drain from the church, the Catholic Church, perhaps in particular, but perhaps not in the West, of young people. Um, and I think part of that is their inability to make intellectual sense of of everything that they're faced with, a religious tradition and a scientific tradition, especially on the biological front, but not only that, they don't know where to place these things in their in their view of the world. I think that's partly why my lectures, because you'd ask yes. about that, had become popular, because I am trying to do that. And What do you think about his analysis of why young people are leaving the church? Oh, it's backed up by a lot of the research, as you and I both know. Uh, people 
will um, identify all sorts of things. They think, oh, that's why young people are leaving. But in study after study, it's intellectual problems. Uh, I don't believe the doctrine. Or to his point, uh, religious doctrine is at odds with what the sciences tell me, and so that causes a cognitive dissonance. So I agree with them. I think that's true. It's a major block. It's a problem for young people. So if the scientific mode of thought is the dominant one today, we got to find a way at least to reconcile that view of the world with a religious view. See, scientism is attractive in a way, because, okay, I can understand everything through the scientific lens, but then they realize in pretty short order, you're not going to adjudicate the deepest questions of life that way. So we have to open those questions, they're properly religious ones, but in such a way that it's not at odds with what they know from a scientific uh, viewpoint. So I think that is a, a major challenge today. You know, it's, it's, an, it's a perennial challenge for the church. Uh, Aquinas took the dominant intellectual form of his time, Aristotelian science and philosophy, and then tried to show a compatibility with Christian doctrine. Well, the same challenge today, you know. So I, I quite agree with him. And I think the fact that he's a, a psychologist, so he's trained in, if you want, a scientific Western tradition, and he's opening up, these religious texts and trying to show, at least in his case, their psychological meaning, great, great. And, and young people see, okay, well, he's a scientist and he thinks these texts have some significance. I get it. That makes sense to me. So in that way, you know, he's a John the Baptist type figure, I think, for those who are more explicitly um, religious. You mentioned how Jordan's opening up these religious texts. I checked when I was preparing this episode on his Genesis lecture series. So he did a yeah. bunch of big, long stand-up lectures on the book of Genesis. And the first video, I think it's two and a half hours, maybe three hours long, is nine million views. Yeah, no, nine yeah. million times people have sat down and watched that. And that, that leads us here to the second clip where early on in the discussion, you two were talking about the Bible. And Jordan emphasized that the Bible is a book to be taken seriously, not just by believers, but by anybody in the Western tradition. So here's him talking about the Bible. Well, you, you hinted at it a bit there by saying, well, look, many, many people have looked, worked on this for a very, very long period of time. And in some sense, it's a living document, yeah, right? Because, right? because it does have to be, it, the Bible just doesn't exist as a book on a shelf. It's, yeah. it's a, a pattern of meaning within a context and the context has to be taken into account. Um, so you say, well, there's a powerful context for its interpretation. It's also a fundamental text in that the Bible is implicit in all sorts of other great texts like Shakespeare or yeah. any, anything that's a product of Judeo-Christian culture it, that's a deep product is deeply affected by the Bible. So it's there implicitly whether you like it or not. And so yeah. it has to be taken seriously, I would say, even if you don't b believe it, but then to the degree that you believe the central axioms of Western culture, you have to wonder how much of what's biblical you do end up believing because of its implicitness. Yeah, you know, I think, Brandon, there he's going after, as I would too, this sort of easy dismissal of the Bible on the part of, of the new atheists. So think of, you know, the Sam Harris's and, and, um, and Christopher Hitchens of the world who just in a very cavalier way, you know, dismiss the Bible as as pre-scientific nonsense and Bronze Age mythology and all these poor things. They didn't you know, know a molecule from an atom and yet they're, they're carrying on. Well, that sort of dismissal is, is really destructive. First of all, it's stupid because as he points out, uh, this is the master text of Western civilization in many ways. 
And the brightest people up until, let's say, the scientific era, the brightest people in our culture were focused upon it. And so if it's just a bunch of old, you know, wives' tales and silly nonsense, it, that doesn't, just doesn't hold. It's not tenable. Um, but then again, the question is, all right, well, how do I read it seriously and hang on to what I know from other sources of knowledge? And that's, I think, a, for me, a legitimately Catholic way to do it. We don't isolate the Bible as though it has no relation to what we know from other uh, disciplines. No, no, it's, it's got to be in dialogue with that at the very least um, because we don't bifurcate the mind. We don't play the double truth game. That, you know, Aquinas fought that in the Middle Ages against the Latin of Eros. So that's still a temptation to say, oh, I'm a scientist, but, and then I've got this kind of quirky interest in this ancient text. No, no, you've got to read the ancient text in light of what we know from other fields, but don't let those other fields so dominate the discussion that we relegate the Bible to the, um, to the margins. So I think that's the space that he and I, I think Peterson and I would both agree, that's the space we have to move into as we approach the Bible. All right, that takes us to about a half hour into the interview, and by this point, you have already talked about things like salvation, justice, the Bible, and now you're getting into good and evil. So you guys, of course, stay yeah. on the surface here of these conversations. Um, but here's where you and Peterson had, I think, your major disagreement throughout the dialogue. And I want to spend a little more time on this because I feel like during the discussion, you didn't have enough time to hmm. unpack your view. But here's the fundamental point. You argued that people always pursue what they perceive to be the good. And that if somebody does something evil, it's not because they want to do evil per se, but that they think the evil thing they're doing is a good, that they're somehow deceived. Peterson viciously disagreed with that, and he brought up the example of Cain and Abel in Genesis. So let me play his Cain and Abel argument, and then we'll, we'll let you spend some more time talking about this. You know, Cain is resentful. He has his reasons. His sacrifices were repudiated by God yeah. for reasons that yeah. aren't made clear in the text, which is a great ambiguity because often our sacrifices yeah. are repudiated. And Cain is bitter and no wonder. And he has Abel around to rub his <laughs> nose in it as well. But Cain's reaction is, I am going to destroy what God values most. And that, now you might say, well, Cain is but conflicted and ambivalent about that. And I believe that, but yeah. But I don't think he was seeking the good when he killed, when he struck down. He was, he was, he was shaking seeking, his fist it, at God. Yeah, it, indeed he was, objectively, but he was seeking at least the apparent good for him. In his twisted mind, he thought that was the good. I don't believe it. Uh, I don't believe it. I think you can get to a point where you're so resentful. I really believe this, that you're so yeah. resentful that you will do harm to yourself. No, but see, in a way, Brandon, this is a... It, it, to me, it's not a controversial issue, and I think we're probably talking past each other. All I'm relying on there is the famous Thomistic adage, right, that, that even the most wicked person is seeking at least the apparent good. And that's just because of the structure of the will. So I'm not really making a psychological remark here. It's a metaphysical remark, or it's a remark of philosophical anthropology. The will, by its very structure, seeks the good. Now, objectively speaking, it might be very bad what the will is seeking. So we're all sinners. We know about that. Cain is a sinner, and he's, in, he's seeking something objectively bad, namely the, the, the death of his brother. Uh, but given the structure of the will, the will can't choose what it doesn't see as in any way good. Otherwise, it wouldn't be an act of the will. 
So in a way, it's I'm making a very minimalistic claim, and I think he was taking it in a very maximal way, as though I was saying, well, there really can't be evil people. No, it's just the structure of the will. You're always seeking what's at least apparently the good thing. So, for example, in, in the Cain case, um, is getting back at God something that Cain perceived to be a good? Yeah, it would give him a sense of satisfaction. Now, was he wrong about that? Of course. Was that, in fact, a bad thing to do? Of course. But it was at least the apparent good for him. You know, so I, I, I'm not making a grandiose sort of philosophical claim here or, or about, you know, the nature of, of good and evil. It's simply a claim about the structure of the will. Now, I do think you can draw a certain conclusion from that. That's part of the imago dei in us, right? That, that we have this image of God in us, and it's in especially the mind and the will, our great tradition says. So even the perverse will is still acting out of that imago because it's, it's pursuing at least the apparent good. So I, I'll cling to that. I think there is something right in saying, I, I never, even Hitler, even the worst people, I never want to relegate to just utter, utter uh, darkness because then you're involving yourself in some metaphysical contradictions as though evil has its own substance. It, it's in some ways a cousin of the question of, of, of the nature of evil. We would say evil is always a privatio boni, right? It's a privation of the good. So the, the bad will is never utterly bad because if it were, it wouldn't exist. And there's no such thing as an utterly bad will in that sense. It's, it's always seeking at least the apparent good. So in a way, it's, a, it's not as grandiose a question as he's making it there. It's, it's more of a fundamental question. But it does speak to a degree to the Imago Dei, I'll say that, you know. And as if you want a ground for hope, where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. Uh, so. Doesn't Thomas say something like, in the end, everybody from the greatest saint to the greatest sinner seeks happiness? Yeah, and right. And that, that to, to your point, even those people seeking evil, destructive things are are in the end seeking their own happiness. And we right. might raise the counterexample of, you know, somebody who just wants to make themselves miserable. They're masochistic or sadistic and they're pursuing unhappiness. But then you could say even those people are aiming to find happiness in their unhappiness There's or something, in their destructive behavior. Right. There's something attractive. Now, he's perverse, yes. Wrongheaded, yes. Let's try to get him out of it, of course. But yeah, they're seeking what at least appears to them to be the route of happiness. Even someone who commits suicide, what are they seeking but, but a, a peace beyond the awful struggle that they're in? They're, they're, try, they're seeking the good in that sense. Um, so I'm just following Thomas Aquinas there. All right, this takes us to about the 45-minute mark, and from about 45 minutes to an hour and a half, you guys hmm. had a really good 45-minute discussion about Jesus, and I think this is what most viewers were waiting for, um, because Peterson, his views toward Jesus, I think, have been developing over the last several months. You're a Catholic bishop. It seems like Peterson's kind of stuck on the historicity of Jesus or his resurrection. So the next uh, few questions I want to play have to do with Jesus, and I want to give you some chance to unpack that. So first of all, we're going to talk about the cross. Um, here's Peterson analyzing what he thinks happens on the cross and what the cross represents. So Christ is tortured by betrayal, by, by, by physically, 
yeah. and spiritually as well, because the best way to torment someone is when is to punish them despite their innocence, right? Yeah. So right, right, right. right. or maybe worse than that, to punish them because of their virtues. That's mm -hmm. even better, and so that's that's intrinsic in the story as well. Christ bears up under that. He doesn't repudiate God. Or doesn't repudiate his own essence. It's something like that. He, but the, then what is the is the example of that? Is the example of bearing up under that exceptional duress and maintaining a moral stance? Is that the example that redeems the world? Is it that if you do that in your own life, the world is de facto redeemed? Yeah, you know, what does the cross mean? Um, we've been debating that and musing about it for 2,000 years. It's interesting to me, Brandon, that the church has never given a definitive interpretation that the cross of Jesus saves us from our sins. Yeah, that's the doctrine of the church. Now, how does that happen? Well, now, pick your theory. You've got theories from the Christus Victor theory of the Church Fathers through the famous atonement theories of Anselm to all sorts of other theories that have arisen today. Uh, is there something to this, I'd call it psychodynamic reading of the cross that Jordan Peterson pursues? Sure, sure. Is Jesus, in fact, a great moral exemplar on the cross? Of course, Thomas Aquinas says that. You know, if you want to see these like five great virtues, look to the cross. And does that contribute to our redemption and salvation? Sure, I would say. Think here of Abelard, you know, who said the cross is love awakening love. So we see in the love displayed on the cross, and maybe using Peterson's suggestion there, that Jesus' love for the Father despite all of these, you know, obstacles and opposition. Okay, okay, there's something to that, it seems to me. But I, I'd want to press it further. I'm, I'm a little wary of cross as moral example, because it does seem to me a very modern way to do it. And you were right earlier, this, I'll put my theologian's hat on a bit here, but uh, the German philosopher Lessing, who famously said there's a gulf that yawns between the data of history and then the, um, the uh, absolute certitudes of reason, right? History is always ambiguous and who really knows and so on. And then there's these high truths of reason and there's a gulf between them. And so the point there is, well, the historical Jesus and, and you know, what really happened, who knows? It's all so murky and obscure, but yet we want to make these sort of high definitive claims. And how do you get past Lessing's Gulf? That becomes a major preoccupation of modern theology. I won't bore you, but you know, I, think, I think Hegel and everybody else are trying to deal with Lessing's Gulf. Well, one way to do that is uh, Kant's way. And I've always felt that Peterson is somewhat Kantian in his approach. Kant would say, the historical Jesus, I mean, who knows? Who knows what was going on back then? But we have these great stories in the Gospels that present to us the archetype of the person perfectly pleasing to God. So this story of Jesus who preaches and heals and is upright in every possible way and, and yes, even goes to his death despite opposition because of his faithfulness to God. What you see, according to Kant, is there it is, the archetype of the person perfectly pleasing to God. And I look at that archetype and say, hey, I should be like that too, right? And that's how Jesus saves. Well, I mean, okay, but it's such a reductive approach. And, you know, I say a plague on Lessing's Gulf. I mean, I, I never, I don't buy that. And Christianity is, is unavoidably a historical religion. We're not just making abstract moral and philosophical claims. It's in this Jesus 
that we find the incarnation of the Son of God. It's in this Jesus who really died and really rose from the dead that we find our salvation. This Jesus who founds a church which endures to the present day, we can look around and see the extension of the mystical body through space and time. My point is, I, I'm not interested in Lessing's Gulf. I don't think we have to deal with Lessing's Gulf. I think Christianity is grounded credibly in historical realities that do yield to us these enduring uh, uh, truths. Now, that's a long way of saying, I, 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 as I listened to Jordan Peterson, I heard very much a, a kind of a Kantian uh, account of the cross. And I would want to say, okay, as far as it goes, but we got to go a lot further. Well, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Bishop Barron about his recent two-hour-long discussion with Jordan Peterson. It was the second conversation the two men have shared. We're going through it and analyzing some of the key moments and pivotal points throughout the discussion. we got a few more clips left here, Bishop. Um, sticking on the theme of Jesus, Peterson next turned to the topic of Christ and the Eucharist, which he mm. describes as the great adventure that's not being given to young people. I think, mm. I can't remember if I have it in the clip or not, but at, at one point you kind of interjected and said, I wish you would preach to our people about the <laughs> yeah. Eucharist and the power of the Eucharist. So let me play that clip here. Yeah. So now in Orthodox Christianity, as I understand it, there seems to me to be more emphasis on the idea that it's each human's obligation to become like Christ. That's yeah. the goal. Well, that's, that's, that by definition, we could say, and we could speak psychologically about this as well, that means to become the ideal, the ideal that's beyond rationality. That's what you're aiming at. That's yeah. what's hypothetically within your grasp. For, and it seems to me as well that that's what the mass symbolizes, is that, and I'd be happy to have it, any objections to this, I would be happy to hear. The, the incorporation of the host is the, is the embodiment. It's the incarnation of Christ within. That's what it's acting out. That's the idea. I mean, in some sense, it's, it's the consumption of the saving element. But the saving element is actually a mode of being. And this isn't hit home. It's like, look what the church, the church demands everything of you. Yeah. Absolutely everything. And and the reason that, that people are leaving is because that adventure isn't being put before them. Yes. It's like, look, you can have yes. your cars and your money and all of that, but yes. that's nothing compared to the adventure that you could be going on. What do you think about yeah. Jordan Peterson, the preacher there? Yeah, and you know, the two sections, you're right. What he was saying about the Eucharist, I would say, is largely right. I, I would refine the language a bit, and it's... Again, maybe tending in a more psychologizing direction. But if you listen to him there, and it was interesting for me to listen to him again, it's pretty good. He's pretty close to, uh, I'd say, a healthy Catholic objectivism about the Eucharist. But th his real point, I think, is, is the moral one and the spiritual one about the full implication. If you say amen when, when the priest says to you, the body of Christ, and then you ingest, you eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus, you're not playing around there. That's a very serious move because you're internalizing spiritually, psychologically, even physically, the, the incarnate Son of God. And that means you are, yes, indeed, being drawn into his power. I would say grace and then the cooperation with grace. And what he's saying there, I think quite correctly, is, boy, have we underplayed the proper demand of this. Um, we've not held out to our young people this high adventure 
moral and spiritual adventure of conformity with Christ. If a young kid just blandly says, you know, amen, and puts the Eucharist in his mouth and goes back and then starts daydreaming, um, you're not beginning to sense the power of what you've done. And yeah, we're at fault, I would say. We, we uh, church men and women are at fault in not calling our young people to much higher ideals. So I, I like him there. And see, the thing is, the fact that it's Jordan Peterson saying that, who more than probably anyone in our culture right now is in fact calling younger people to a higher intellectual and moral adventure. That's how I'd see his attractiveness. So that's why, you know this, Brandon, a few years ago when I got up in front of all my brother bishops and I just said, the Peterson phenomenon is a sign of hope. And that's what I meant was this serious man talking in a serious way about, I call them psychological and spiritual matters and talking about the Bible is attracting a giant audience of young people, especially men. I mean, come on, we're, we're nowhere in that ballpark. So I took it as a sign of hope that we can and should talk about our issues in a high, serious way. But, you know, that's, look, my generation, we got the dumbed-down and namby-pamby version of it, and we were so convinced somehow that kids weren't up to it. Trust me, I mean, that's what I took in as a young man was that, you know, religion, obviously they can't handle anything that's serious, and if we get serious, they're going to run away. Au contraire, right? I mean, I think, I think just the contrary. What they ran away from was this wimpy, namby-pamby religion. Of course they do, because they grew up. Talk to people my generation. I got the grace of discovering Thomas Aquinas when I was a kid. That was a sheer grace that led me down a more serious path. Talk to my, my colleagues, though, my age. You know, they, they were met with the banners and balloons. And so, they, of course, they ran away. What Peterson is saying there, I think, quite rightly is, no, the contrary. Give young people a high intellectual and moral challenge, and they'll respond to it. We got a couple more clips to go. Uh, I mentioned we were on a whole kick around Jesus. So we talked about Jesus on the cross, then just now Jesus in the Eucharist. This next one is the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. And again, you see Jordan grappling with, on the one hand, the psychological reading of the resurrection, but then on the other hand, the question of its historical reality. Did it really happen? Um, so here's Jordan. But yep. then there's the insistence on in the church of the bodily resurrection, which is, well, let's call that a stumbling block to modern belief. No, no doubt about that. That's something more than mere metaphor. And so you might ask, well, why is it insisted upon? Why isn't the proposition that you, you have a transcendent moral obligation to bear uh, to 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 operate for the good of all things, regardless of your suffering? A hard line, no justification with um, the defeat of death necessitated. I'm not trying to make a fundamental critique of the idea of the resurrection because I know there are things that I don't know. I, I, I know that for sure. And God only knows how the world is fundamentally structured. But, but it seems, and this is a Nietzschean criticism in some sense too, and a Freudian criticism, it's, that seems in, in some real sense too good to be true. Yeah. So... And, and so what do you make of the what do you make of the resurrection? How do you conceptualize it, even as it's re related in the Gospels? <laughs> yeah, I forget what I said to him that day, but I, I like the honesty of the question a lot. And um, even that acknowledgement of it's too good to be true, there's a lot in that. There's a lot in that because, you know, Brandon, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection has been a stumbling block from the beginning. It's not as though all those, you know, 
pre-scientific people, they believed any old nonsense. I mean, that's for the birds. You see it in the Gospels themselves as they, they're struggling to understand what it is they're, they're seeing and taking in. Um, there were all kinds of models for understanding what happened to someone after he or she died in Jesus' time. And they were, they were trying to fit this novelty into those, and they were, the categories were breaking and so on. My point is, his struggle in the year 2021 is, was their struggle in the year 30, you know? So I, I don't want to domesticate the resurrection and say, okay, well, we'll explain it symbolically or psychologically or archetypally. Yeah, we can do all that, and there's something to it, but gosh, it, it makes the resurrection too easy. It's, it's meant to be something that is, is uh, challenging. Now, why? Why? Because God is doing something in the resurrection. Namely, he's remaking his creation. Uh, the body matters. And that's a Jewish perspective. See, we're still very haunted by, by Plato, it seems to me, uh, that the serious stuff is going on at the you know, ideational level and the formal level and the abstract philosophical, and then there's the body. You know? And I think it's Plato, I think it's a Gnostic uh, holdover. But Christianity is a Jewish movement, you know, and the body, well, that's me. I, I'm my body. I, I'm not I'm a soul that's floating above or inside my body. So the bodily resurrection of Jesus means God is doing something um, new. In fact, that's as they mused on it, a new heavens and a new earth are emerging, that the fallen world is being remade and lifted up to a new place. And those are some of the implications of the belief in the bodily resurrection. Is it um, weird and strange, hard to believe? Yeah. I I'm with Kierkegaard, who famously said, the point of theology is to make doctrine hard to believe. Because <laughs> you know, it runs against every instinct we have from liberalism, which is, no, 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 let's try to make it as credible as possible. Yeah, but the trouble is you make it as credible as possible, then you lock it into our little framework of understanding, where the power of the Bible is this sort of breaking of the old category. Something new and fresh has happened. And so make it hard to believe. You know, so those great scenes in the Gospels where they, they see him, they worshiped, and they doubted. You know, the Gospels are trying to communicate to us. They were trying to figure out what in the world is this, you know? Okay, because God is making a new world in, in Jesus. Something new has broken in. And so I, I don't want to relegate the bodiliness of the resurrection to some kind of pre-scientific or primitive way of talking. No, no, I, I say a plague on Gnosticism. I, I'm for um, a, a robustly biblical view of it, you know? I think one thing I might have said to Jordan Peterson was um, take the archetypal language of Jung, which you know he loves, and I love too. I love Jung, and 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 yes, indeed, the archetype of you know death and resurrection and so on. Okay, but what would it look like if an archetype came true? <laughs> that an archetype left the realm of just you know um, uh, ideation and took flesh, and indeed. St. John will say, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, the, the pattern, the logos of God. Would archetypal psychology give us access in a way to the great logos of the world? Okay, but what if the logos became flesh and dwelt among us? Now we're talking. See, now we're into the world of Christianity. So 
You know, I get it. This is, Brandon, attention as old as Christianity itself. Call it if you want between um, liberalism and conservatism or between relevance and distinctiveness or whatever term you want to use, but to make the faith intellectually accessible, but to keep the faith uh, fascinating, you know, and that's the tension. The liberal will always tend toward, let's try to make it understandable. The other side would tend to say, let's no, let's keep it distinctive. Uh, if it's so distinctive, it becomes peculiar and irrational, but if it's so accessible, it becomes domesticated and boring. And so the great theologians, I think, are, are walking that ground. So that's where I would maybe invite Jordan Peterson is keep walking that ground between total domestication and, and irrationality. Well, let's play one last clip. This is from the very end of your discussion. I think it starts at like the one hour, 48 minute mark. And they're kind of some cursory send-off words, but I think they're really important. It was a really important exchange. That's where you and him were talking about his wife. And Jordan yeah. revealed that his wife, Tammy, uh, during her time of great suffering, began praying the rosary uh, religiously, for lack of a better word. And she fell in love with the mm -hmm. ritual dynamic of that prayer. And you gave him a little advice, but I want to unpack that a little more because, again, it, it kind of happened at the end of the discussion and you didn't get a chance to say anything about it. So I want to give you a chance here. So let's play the clip. You know, tell Your wife's name is Tammy, right? Yes. Tell her, you know, we did, uh, just came out with it. Uh, it's on YouTube, a, a series of reflections I did on the rosary. And I know with her interest in the rosary that she just go on YouTube and, and check it out. She might find that interesting. Yeah, it's too bad we didn't have a chance to talk to that a little about that because yeah, but just tell her that because I, I, I love the rosary too. It's a great prayer and it 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 works at so many different levels. You can look at it psychologically and even physically. You know what that does to you. So have her look at those maybe and uh, you know give her my best. And I remember we were in Rome, right after you and I spoke the first time. Our team was in Rome doing some filming. And I think we, I forget whom we sent it to, someone in your office, but we did a little video. And I knew that your wife was very sick at the time. I didn't know that you were on the verge of your issues, you know. But I just said, we said mass in my room there in, in, in Rome, which is in the hotel room, and said it for your wife. So we sent that to you. So let her know that we have been for a long time praying for the two of you. Well, that's much appreciated. And it's certainly all the care that people have shown, including the care that you've shown, has been extraordinarily helpful. And she's yeah. listening to you on a regular basis. I so, appreciate that. And she's certainly found the practice of the rosary. Tammy is quite a physical person. And yeah. so she's, it's practice for her rather than right. an intellectual endeavor. Not that she's incapable of intellectual endeavor, but she's an adept practitioner. So she's, she does has well, done yoga for years. It in your hand matters you know it's a very physical thing yes well it was it was it was it it, it it helped her maintain peace while she was facing death yeah essentially continually and and so the, the 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 that's the ritual element which we never talked about at all partly i suppose because you know we tend towards the abstract and the intellectual right. but the ritual <laughs> well, next time the ritual shouldn't be should, yes exactly oh. the ritual shouldn't be uh dismissed no, I'm a Catholic. Heck, ritual is our you, whole thing. Did you, you want know? to say a word about Peterson's observation about the ritual power of the rosary? Sure, he's right, you know, and uh, maybe next time we can talk about it more. Um, the rosary, you know, works, as I said there, at so many different levels. And um, from the physical, I mean, holding the, the rosary and the and beads, you're breathing as you, as you pray it. Um, I find that just holding the rosary brings a sense of peace to me. Um, and then the psychological dimension, you know, of the, the mantra-like repetition of the prayers. 
the calming of the mind and so on. But then the deepest thing, and you know, if we really had time to talk about it, Mary will always lead you to Christ. And so if Jordan's wife has been drawn to the rosary, um, I'll speak sort of as a spiritual director in a way. It's only a matter of time before she's brought to Christ because that's what Mary always does. So if you engage her uh, in prayer, you you ask for her intercession, um, that's what's going to happen. You know, you can ask for all kinds of particular things and, and you may or may not get them. That's always up to God. But I can guarantee you that you'll be led closer to Christ. So, you know, uh, I, I wish her the very best as she continues along that path. Well, it's time now for our question from our listener. Every episode, we take one question from our listeners. If you have one that you'd like to ask Bishop Barron, send it in to us at the website askbishopbarron.com. Today we have one from Mary. She lives in California, where Bishop Barron is. She's asking why Catholics put the emphasis on the suffering and crucified Christ instead of the resurrected Christ. Here's your question. Hi, my name is Mary from Campbell, California. And my question is, how can I answer my Protestant friend who claims Catholics focus too much on suffering and Jesus on the cross and not enough on his resurrection? Yeah, it's a classic question. And there's obviously always a play between the dying and the rising of Jesus. If if Jesus simply died on the cross, that was the end of the story, he'd be of very little interest to anybody. So obviously, we look at Jesus crucified only because we know he's the risen Lord, that that cross led to the resurrection. So first of all, just to make that point real clearly, um, why do we show Jesus uh, crucified, Jesus in his suffering? I'll give you one little hint. We did a a series of videos on the rosary, and we talked about the various uh, mysteries, you know, the joyful mysteries and the luminous mysteries and the glorious mysteries. What by far has the most views? The sorrowful mysteries. (laughs) So, look, in this life, in this world, you know, something we all have in common. We all suffer. And yes, our great hope is for resurrection in the risen Christ. But I I don't find it at all puzzling that I, I think it's the piety of the people. It wasn't so much a doctrinal imposition from above. I would say that's the piety of Catholic people over centuries that has put a stress on the suffering of Jesus because we all have that in common in this valley of tears, right? We all suffer, and so we naturally gravitate toward Christ in his sufferings. So I I would see it less as a doctrinal imposition, as more something that I think welled up very naturally from the piety of the people. Well, thanks for that question, Mary. And before we go here, a couple of final updates. Um, One of them is to remind you to pick up your copy of our new book. It's titled After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. Arguably, C.S. Lewis's most important and prophetic nonfiction book, The Abolition of Man. And until now, there has not been a good guide or commentary to that book. But Michael Ward has written one for Word on Fire. So pick it up. When you order it, you will also get a free copy of C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. So you get both books together. Also, a little teaser, I don't think we've shared this publicly yet, but in one month, on July 29th, we're going to be releasing a book at Word on Fire titled Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. It's the first book that analyzes all of Peterson's work, including his biblical lectures, both of his best-selling books, 
from a Christian perspective. It was co-authored by two professors, uh, Dr. Chris Kayser and Dr. Matthew Petrusik. One of them uh, specializes in philosophy, the other is a theologian. So you get some good Christian Catholic perspectives on Peterson's work. I'm sure we'll be talking about that book as it comes out, but given we are talking about Peterson here, I wanted to give you guys the, the first chance to hear about that book. Well, thanks so much for listening and watching. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.